Good morning. Welcome to Crosspoint Coast. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt Hardy. I am one of the four elders here with uh, Jeremiah, Mark, and Joel. I'm excited to be here today. It's always exciting, always a little bit nervous, but always exciting. Um, I'm happy that I can look out and see so many people I can call uh, friends and longtime friends here. Um, we, we finished our series in Acts about a month ago, and since then we've been spending some time in the Psalms. And today we're going to continue that theme, as you, as you saw, we're in Psalms 42. It may be a familiar passage uh, for some of you. Some of you may recognize it from the, we sang a song about it a few times uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I was given the choice of uh, any psalm that I wanted to preach, I could preach, which is kind of overwhelming. There's 150 to choose from. And I ended up with Psalm 42. I chose it uh, probably about a month ago. And during that month, there's been several times where I thought maybe I've chosen poorly. This is a, this is a difficult psalm. Um, it's full of emotion. It's, it's full of uh, sadness, right? This, this psalm is, is cited as one of the clear examples of spiritual depression in, in the Bibles, in the Bible. And, and yet this psalm is also one of the psalms that's meant to be sung. Um, it's, it's a part of Scripture, so we know it's useful for us. We know it benefit, benefits us, but it's full of emotion from beginning to end. But that's what makes the Psalms great, like Jeremiah said. Um, we are people full of emotion, uh, and the Psalms don't try to hide that. They don't apologize for it. Uh, they, they lay doctrine for us over emotion. They, they don't have to separate them. We are, we are a people of deep feeling, and God knows that. It's not simply advice outside of the human experience. It's not teaching outside of what we go through. The Psalms can be messy. They were written through messy people, for messy people. So today I'd invite this messy church full of complicated, deeply emotional people to look into this text with your messy pastor, and hopefully we see a beautiful, not messy God who is sufficient for us, who is our rock, who is our salvation, who is our God. Join me in prayer before we start. God, we pray for your grace today. I find myself insufficient for the task, Lord, but you are sufficient. Lord, you have provided. You will provide. Lord, I pray that you would speak clearly today from your word. I could step aside and you'd have us hear what, you'd, what you want us to hear, Lord, that your word is useful for teaching, Lord. Pray these things in your name. Amen. So like I said, when we look at this psalm, it sounds like the equivalent of the biblical blues, right? We have a psalm in, in front of us that's touching on the fullness of the human experience, and it's a human experience that we often don't like to discuss, we don't have a lot of discussion about depression. It's not one of the more fun things to talk about. It's more fun to talk about Christian joy, Christian happiness, Christian uh, anything else besides depression. Uh, it's not a story uh, about a great adventure or, or a narrative. This, this psalm is about a person who is struggling, who is fighting for joy in the midst of darkness, in the midst of a deep sadness. But that is what we love about the Psalms. They don't pretend. 
They don't pretend that we have everything together. The Psalms aren't afraid to talk about the dark and scary parts of our lives. Sometimes we are. Sometimes we are afraid to talk about that. More than once, I was scared to tackle this psalm. I questioned the wisdom of trying to tackle a subject like depression in 45 minutes or less. Who am I to speak on this? I'm not a psychologist. I'm not even a counselor. I certainly don't have any kind of medical education. What could I possibly have to offer you that would be beneficial? Like for every one of my preps, I read some books. I read some commentaries and I read the scriptures over and over. Done it over and over every time I preached. And this time I found myself stuck. I found myself lacking. I looked at this text in front of me and it's full of turmoil, full of sadness. And again, I wondered why I volunteered this particular psalm. And then God, who is so kind to me and his grace, reminded me of what he often reminds me of. He's written what we need to hear. He's already provided it. He's already given it to us. The Lord has provided sufficiently. None of you here today should really care about my opinion or what I have to say anyways. We should be here to hear what the Lord has to say, and I hope that's what we hear today. We come to hear from the Lord of the universe. He's given us his word, and it is sufficient. So I pray that as we come together every week to be moved, it's not by the preacher, not by ideas or our preparation, but by the Holy Spirit and by God's word. So I will say I am not qualified to speak on depression today, but God is. And that is actually our only hope every time we sit under the word. I wanted to start first as we talk about depression, with a definition of depression. I've been using the word without defining it, and I think it's important that we see. So I found this definition from the Mayo Clinic, and I think it helps. Depression is a mood disorder that causes a persistent feeling of sadness and a loss of interest. Also called major depressive disorder or clinical depression, it affects how you feel, think, and behave it can lead to a variety of emotional and physical problems. You may have trouble doing normal day-to-day activities, and sometimes you feel as if life isn't worth living. More than just about the blues, depression isn't a weakness that you can simply snap out of. If you look at that de- description, that definition, it's, it's how you feel, it's how you think, it's how you behave. It can cause emotional and physical problems. It's one of the reasons depression is so difficult. It's so encompassing. It's all-consuming. Is it a problem with our thoughts? Is it a problem with our physical bodies? Or is it a problem with our spiritual life? In the psalm today, we see all these aspects. We see the author's thoughts affected. We see his body affected and his soul as well. How does one separate the mind from the body from the soul? Where does one of them start and the other one end? Often in the history of the treatment of depression, especially in the medical community and in the church, there's been focus on defining one or the other, either the body, the mind, or the spirit. We're going to start with looking at the body. We can see the the effects on the body in, in this psalm. Verse three, my tears have been my food day and night. His sustenance, his food, is sadness. 
Perhaps he's even stopped eating anything else. There's a certain physicality with the phrase day and night. He's implying a restlessness or a persistence that just won't go away. Verse 10 has the imagery of a a deadly wound in my bones. I don't know if you've ever broken a bone, but but, uh, it hurts pretty bad. It implies an aching, a a real pain. It's just a couple small references, but it's clear that his body is affected. But is the body the sole cause of the depression here? It's a popular model in in the medical community to have a uh, treatment for depression the drug treatment model that addressed first and foremost the body. The model is based on research that showed our thoughts and emotions actually depend on certain chemicals, chemicals that aid in flowing through our brain and help us uh, think properly. It showed that many of the sufferers of depression have a deficiency of these chemicals. And the drug companies found pills that could replace those missing chemicals. And the drugs have become very popular in fact, there was a 64% increase over the last 15 years from, from the year 1999 to 2014. There is unquestionably a physical, bodily element to most depressions, often requiring some medication. But to say that depression is only physical would be a mistake. To say that depression is solely either the body or the mind or the spirit would be a mistake. Much like we see in the Psalms here today, it touches every aspect of our being. Look at the spirit, the effect of the spirit and the soul here. There's long been a position held in in many churches that depression is solely a spiritual issue. We can easily see in this Psalm the effects of the spirit. Verse 1 and 2, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. In verse 5, 6, and 11, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? My soul is cast down within me. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you within turmoil within me? See, in verse 1 and 2, he describes it as a thirst. I think it's interesting. He doesn't use the word hunger. He uses the word thirst. It's more acute, right? We can be, we can be hungry for a long time. You can't be thirsty for very long. It doesn't work out very well. He has this, this, this desire that it can only be satiated by one thing, right? Thirst can only be fixed by drinking something. His soul has a deep thirst it's for something that's missing. And in the following 5, 6, and 11, we see his soul cast down. It's echoed again and again and again. There's clearly an impact on his spirit, on his spiritual life. Fortunately, in the church, there's been a long and widely held view that depression is merely a symptom of sin. Listen to this quote from a 1973 manual for Christian counselors from Zondervan. The hope for the depressed person as elsewhere lies in this. The depression is a result of the counselee's sin. Sounds pretty harsh, right? If sin is the sole issue... Then the prescription, of course, was confession and repentance. This places all the responsibility of the depression on the patient who is already depressed, already suffering physically, most likely unable to even reach a point that he could come to repentance and confess. It ends up with depressed people feeling more depressed. 
it also doesn't necessarily fit with what we see in the psalm. We don't see sin mentioned in this psalm. If you jump over to the next psalm, Psalm 43, it's a continuation, and he doesn't confess sin in the midst of his depression. It's not in there. But we do know that the psalms don't shy away from the confession of sin, and even the confession of sin, a sin that led to sadness, sin that even possibly led to depression. I'm not saying that sin is never the cause of depression, just that it's not solely the cause of depression. If we look at Psalms 32, it's a good example. It says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. And in Psalms 52, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother did conceive me. Right, so there is confession of sin and there is sin that causes sadness. Uh, There's some important note uh, that I got from the book. I'm not supposed to feel like this. It says this, we should in general reassure Christians suffering from depression that most often their damaged spiritual relationships and feelings are not the cause of depression, but the consequence of it. So it's much more likely for someone suffering from depression that it is a fruit of the depression that they feel the spiritual uh, distance, that they become numb, right? If we say that depression often has a physical uh, part of it, that it's a bodily issue as well as a spiritual issue, as well as a thinking issue, it would be wrong for us to say that it was caused by sin. It would be wrong for us to say that you have cancer, therefore you must have sinned. Right? That, w- that We would never say that. But all too often, we do think like that. We are quick to do that. We're even quick to do it with our own lives, right? Our own hearts. I'm, I'm suffering. I must have, what have I done? Why is God angry with me? Why is God distant? We're quick to, quick to say that, even though we might not believe it. The idea that sickness is caused by sin is better left with the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel people, and not us with more sound doctrine. The next issue with depression is an issue with the mind, not just the brain, but the way we think. Depression affects the way we think, for sure. Spurgeon had this to say about it. Reader, never ridicule the nervous and the hypochondriacal. Their pain is real. Though much of the malady lies in the imagination or thought processes, it is not imaginary. When our thought processes are being changed, it's very difficult to determine what the truth is. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a medical doctor who later became a preacher, shared this. Christians don't understand how physical, psychological, and spiritual realms interrelate because Satan muddies the boundaries. Many of our troubles are caused because we think a problem is spiritual when it is physical, or we think a problem is physical when it's emotional or spiritual. Depression can lead to many issues with the one-way thinks, including falling into unhelpful thought patterns. 
We see in verse seven, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. We see a thought process here that evil upon evil, trouble calls to trouble, and I am overwhelmed by your waves. The thought that even the natural world has turned against him. Here it sounds like a place of despair. Even more troubling, I say to, my, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? So in the same sentence, he says, God, my rock. And then the next is, why have you forgotten me? He knows the truth. And yet his thought is that God has forgotten him. He knows that God has not forgotten him. And yet it feels that way. It is real. It's true to him. Our thoughts are powerful things to try to tackle by ourselves. Right? If, our, if our thought processes are broken, it's really hard to think your way out of that. The system is broken. You can't fix yourself. They lead us down dark paths and even have physical impact on our bodies. Depression is complicated. Depression is all-encompassing. Depression is confusing. It's confusing for the sufferers. It's confusing for the caregivers. It's important that we talk about what depression is, but it's also important that we talk about what depression is not. Depression is not a sin. Often unintentionally, there's a requirement we place on each other. As a fellow Christ follower, you should have joy, right? We should be happy. You should have a smile on your face when you walk in the door every Sunday. We should have this deep and abiding joy in our Savior when we walk with him. Right? But to say that we have a blind, unfaltering joy would just be silly. I mean, it's, it's, it's not. We live in a broken world among broken people. And our emotions are broken as well. Scripture is full of warnings about when we suffer. Not if we suffer, but when we suffer. Christ, as always, is our chief example. He didn't walk around smiling, laughing, having joy all the time, right? We see the depth of emotion in Christ. He wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. He was serious. He was thinking. He was uh, just not always what, would, what we would call happy. If you've been around Crosspoint for a while, or I guess even this morning during the prayer, you've heard the language, pretend and perform. It's the temptation we have when we come here or anywhere to pretend that things are really better than they are, right? I would wager that there's a couple of us today who someone asked you how you were and you pretended and you performed and you said things were great or even it may have been pretending to say things were okay. Statistics tell us that there's people here today who are not okay, who are suffering, But we have that temptation in us. We have that uh, desire in us to pretend, to say things. Uh, It's a struggle. There's a reason in the call to worship that we don't come up front and say, how is everybody doing today? Right? It's just another temptation to say, okay, when maybe things aren't. We know there's people here today who are barely here but it took everything you had to round up the kids. Maybe you had a fight on the way or fight in the morning. Maybe everything has gone wrong. Maybe your life is falling apart, but you're here. We praise God for that.
that you are here. The Psalms should give us hope. A hope that it's okay to not be okay. That it's okay to be sad. That it's okay to be broken by life. To even yell at God on occasion. The book Broken Minds helpfully points this out. It says, David and the other psalmists often found themselves deeply depressed for various reasons. They did not, however, apologize for what they are feeling, nor did they confess it as sin. It was a legitimate part of their relationship with God. They interacted with him through the context of his depression. So we live in this world, and I know that's a profound statement. What I mean is we are shaped by this world. We are shaped by our times and by our culture. And our culture says that we should have it all together, right? We should be able to get things together and have a life that's organized and have a happy family. And because of that, we often look around. Maybe it's at other families. Maybe it's other people. and Maybe it's the family at, at church here that you see every Sunday. They come here and their kids are well-dressed and polite and they behave. They appear to listen. They're attentive. They take notes. They look like the ideal family from the outside, right? We assume that ideal, and then we think less of ourselves because of it. We assume that everything is great with them, and then we look at ourselves. Maybe we look at our kid who just dumped a cup of coffee and is yelling and running around, and we think, what are we doing wrong? My family is a mess. But if you were to close the distance to that family, that that perfect family that sits a few rows ahead of you, and move out of the realm of assumption and into the reality, many of those families here would tell you that they're not pretending everything is okay, but you just weren't close enough to see what was really going on. Once you get to know them, you might see a family that needs grace just like all of us, a family that struggles with issues just like all of us, and a family that lets that need drive them towards Jesus. The book Christians Get Depressed Too really was a great help in my preparation. It served as a great reminder that you can be a Christian and still not have it all together. It really is okay to walk through depression. As I stated earlier, the Psalms never shy away from the full range of human emotion, and neither should, neither should we. Does that mean, then, that we should embrace depression And I would think most would agree with me that, no, it's not something we want to embrace, right? We don't want to embrace any sickness. The same is true of depression. There are a few things that we can do to fight against it. Just as it is true of the impact, the fight against depression must take part in the mind and the body and in the spirit. We'll start with uh, the body and some lifestyle ideas. It says, In the book, Christians Get Depressed Too, they list a few helpful ideas for our our lifestyle. The first one is a routine. Often in depression, the first thing to go is anything that we have to do that we don't want to do. Those adulting things that you have to do, like dishes and laundry and different items around the house. It's good to build those back into our lives if we're suffering through depression. We have to do the things we don't want to do. Maybe that means coming to church. Maybe that means coming to community group when you don't want to. Maybe that means meeting up for triad. Maybe that means 
calling somebody that's uncomfortable. We have to get back into routines. The next is rest and recreation and relaxation. These patterns, again, are disturbed by depression. Depression comes along with anxiety, which fights against rest, which fights against relaxation. I think we've all seen the benefit of a busy life when we take a break, how that fulfills us. God, from the very first week, gave us a command. We're to rest. We're to have a Sabbath rest, a rest of restoration and joy that can be found. And reprioritize. Maybe we are doing some other things we shouldn't be doing. Maybe it's okay if you're suffering to take a break from some of the things that aren't necessary. We need to focus on what it takes to get back. The next realm is our thoughts. We must work to correct our false thoughts. We see that in, in Psalm 42, 5. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? The next line is an admonition to their own soul. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. We're often called to self-examination in Scripture, and, and it's difficult. We're told by the prophet Jeremiah, the heart is deceitfully above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Right? We're called to examine ourselves and ourselves have a heart that's a liar. And we have a heart that is impossible to understand. And yet we're called. In the midst of darkness and depression, it's even easier to fall into the lies we tell ourselves. We must learn to question each thought and fight for the truth. We must not trust our feelings and instead rest in what we know is true. And it's a difficult fight for sure. The other realm is our brain. As I said earlier, it's difficult to know what is true if our brain isn't working right. How do we fight? How do we search? How do we remember? That's why the fight against depression must often include getting our brain chemistry right. Right? Sometimes we need the help of a medical professional when we're sick. And they can help. It gets us back on an even playing field where we have a chance to fight. We have a chance to seek help. We have a chance to even repent and seek God. There's a stigma associated with mental health um, that makes it difficult. It's a stigma, especially with taking antidepressants, right? Especially as a Christian, we still fight that fight. I have Christ. That's all I need. He is my joy. He is my sufficiency. He's given us doctors too, right? We don't say that if, if we have cancer. We don't say that if we have sickness, we go to the doctor, right? The same is true of depression. We have to get back to even so we can start building. And finally, is the spiritual realm. As Martin Lloyd-Jones stated earlier, it's difficult, near impossible for us to differentiate sometimes between what is going on, mind, body, and spirit. Which, where one starts, where one ends, where they overlap. When we consider the soul, it's especially difficult. How do you separate your soul from your thoughts, from your mind, from your heart? During this time of depression, our affections for God can appear to fade. We begin to have false thoughts that God is abandoning us. These symptoms can compound and lead us to a spiritually dark place. 
then it's easy to get into the which came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Are we depressed because God abandoned us? Are we feeling like God abandoned us because we're depressed? It's into dark spirals. The Psalms do have a few lessons in teaching us and fighting the fight against spiritual depression. One of the things that jumps out is the practice of preaching to ourself. You see the psalmist here addressing his soul over and over and over again. In the book Spiritual Depression, Martin Lloyd-Jones had this to say, the essence of this matter is to understand that this self of ours, this man within us, this other man within us, has got to be handled. Do not listen to him. Turn on him, speak to him, condemn him, upbraid him, exhort him, encourage him, remind him of what you know. Instead of listening placidly to him and allowing him to drag you down and depress you, we must take control of our thoughts. One of the best practices to do this is preaching to ourselves. We must take control of the narrative as the psalmist does. You can almost hear him say, oh, my soul, stop it, right? It's implied. We all have that other man within us. We all have that voice, the flesh that we have to fight against. We must fight the fight to make sure that we are in control of the conversation. We are in control of the narrative. Jones has this to say, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Think about that. How much are we listening and how much are we talking? Each time the psalmist questions his soul, he then gives a reason for hope. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Not only must we take control of the conversation, we have to have something worthy of saying, right? What do we say? We should have something that's worth saying and worth listening to, right? We, when we seek advice from others, hopefully we seek advice from people who have something good to say. I often don't seek advice from my children, right? I seek advice from trusted friends. I seek advice from God's word. I seek advice from people who are going to tell me something that is good. We must know something good. And often in the midst of depression, the one thing we need to hear is the assurance of our salvation. Right? That's one of the first things to go. We begin down these trails of poor thoughts that spiral down to the conclusion that God has abandoned us. Where is God? I thirst for God. Where is he? We must take the time now to store up these arguments. We must take the time to know these, to hold these, so that when we seek advice from ourselves, we have something worthy of telling ourselves. We have something stored up in our heart that we know is true, right? That when others in the midst of darkness and depression come to you, you have something that is worthy of saying to them, something that is true, right? We can find assurance in God's word of our salvation. It's all over God's word. I just wanted to share a few verses that are sweet to me on this matter. Uh, the first is Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We don't even begin the work. And we certainly don't complete it. It's not up to us. God does it. We can find assurance in that. We look to ourselves and we find ourselves lacking. We look to God and we see he begins it and he finishes it. 
and we know he does. John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand and I and the father are one. Man, God has us, right? And he's not letting go. Creator God, ruler of the universe, in charge of every atom, every molecule, has us. It's not our grip on him. It's not us holding on to God. We would let go. We would lose hope. We would lose that that connection. It is God who has us. He has us in his grip, and he's not letting go of us. Even in the darkness, even in the sadness, even when we feel like we are, We can't trust our feelings. We have to know what's true. Romans 9, 10 through 13. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our father, our forefather, Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. And it was written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God doesn't choose us because we choose him. God doesn't choose us because of our behavior. He doesn't choose us because we're never sad. God chooses us for his glory and out of his own will. He has chosen us, that same God who does a work in us, that same God who never lets us go, of his own will, chose us. When we don't choose him at times, he's already chosen us. He's already holding us, and he'll never let us go. He chose us even though we were enemies, right? We didn't become perfect, and then he chose us. Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the minds, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Again, what's our role? Did you hear your responsibility in that? We were dead. (laughs) What's a dead man's responsibility? What do they have to do? What can they do? Nothing. Dead men don't make choices, right? God reached down, chose us, holds us, secures us, loves us, and rescues us, not because of our behavior, not because of our ability to stay happy. He loves us at our worst. We're enemies. It's hard to even fathom. How can you love an enemy? But he does. He's chosen us. There are many more to remember, but those are just some to get us started. The other thing that we have to remember is the mechanics of the gospel, right? How does it work? What is actually taking place in the good news of Jesus Christ? What is going on? We often hear of it, right? The gospels, it's a popular word. Uh, But when we preach the good news, when we preach the gospel to ourselves, 
that helps to understand what is going on so that it's not just platitudes, but that we have something firm that we can remember in the dark times. So we get down to this place of hopelessness and, and, and we have to know something that is true, something that's good. We know from our daily experience that on our own, there's nothing we can do, right? If you've ever tried not to sin, I know Jeremiah has shared the story a few times, trying not to sin, try it for an hour, try it for a day, see how that works out, right? I'll tell you right now how it works out, not well, right? The minute you don't sin for the day, you say, look at me. <laughs> I didn't sin for the whole, oh, I see he blew it. Yeah, that's what happens. So when we look to ourselves, we, we find ourselves lacking, hopefully. When we, when we strive with self-righteousness, with fixing ourselves, with pretending and performing, we're always going to come up short. When we look at the law, when we look at the standard of Christ, what is required? What is required? Holiness is required. Perfection is required. Not one mistake. That is the standard. And Christ met that standard without lowering it one iota. And what we'll see this fall is that he raises the standard on sin. Never murdered anybody? Ever hated anybody? Right? Never had adultery? You ever think about it? You ever look at a woman with lust? Christ raises the standard to show us our hopelessness without him. He raised the standard and he met it. He has done this for our good and his glory. We have to understand that based on the law, without Christ, we are deserving of hell. Right? Apart from Christ, we deserve damnation. For our thoughts every day, we deserve damnation. But with Christ, with Christ, when we are in Christ, when we wholly rest in Christ, God sees Christ, no longer us. Christ has accepted from us the only thing we have to give, which is our sin. And instead, he's given us his righteousness, his perfect life in exchange for our sin. It's the great exchange. It's the greatest exchange. It's a deal like no other. And he does it because he's gracious and he does it because he's kind and he does it for his glory. And we reap the benefits of being in Christ, with Christ for eternity. There's something else in the Psalms, though, that we see that is stored up in advance. Look at verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. The psalmist is drawing on a memory of corporate worship, probably very similar to what we did this morning, right? Coming together, singing together, praising God together. Just like so many saints laying on their deathbed, recounting hymns of old, right? hymns from their youth, hymns sung a long time ago, and finding comfort, finding comfort in the worship of God, finding comfort in the memory of corporate worship together. For his hope is in God, and that is repeated in 5 and 11. And it says after that, for I shall again praise him. That's why it's essential that we don't forsake gathering with the saints. 
right? It is, it is our hope. It is our, that we come together and celebrate our hope in God. It is something to recall when it's, when it's dark. It is something that will bring us comfort as, as we sing the songs together, as we come together with God's people, as we're comforted by each other. Perhaps a day such as today will help sustain you in a dark place years from now. This gathering of the saints is something that we should take advantage of as often as we can. We do know that somewhere between 15 and 20% of us will experience depression at some point in our lives. Statistics also tell us that a large percentage of those that suffer will not get the help they need because of the stigma, because of the shame, because of the wrong thoughts, embarrassment, or even ignorance or confusion about what's going on. It's confusing. It's my prayer that we can be a community that's unashamed of our weakness. Just like Paul said in the church, my, in 2 Corinthians twelve nine. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, and persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I pray that we would be equipped to comfort each other with this. We don't have to be strong. When we think about our assurance, it's not on us. As a pastor once said, if I could lose my salvation, I would. Right? But we can't. God is with us. God is for us. We need to have those good words to speak to each other, to comfort each other. I pray that we are close enough with each other, that we know each other, that we can help each other. Right? That you know somebody when they're not thinking right. You know somebody when they're maybe a little bit down, right? That we can point each other, that we can point our own hearts back to Christ. Just like the psalmist preaches to himself, I pray we find our hope in God and God alone. Join me in prayer. God, I thank you for this text. Lord, I I pray that it's not a checklist for us. Lord, I pray that we don't walk away with notes on items to do or God, just that instead it stirs our affection. Or that we store up in our heart your word, that your spirit would enable us to do that. That your word would be our food. Lord, that we would ingest that and be able to use that, Lord. Lord, that we would seek comfort in you, that we would be wise in the counsel we give each other of seeking comfort in you, Lord, that you would Lord, provide care, help us care for those around us, or that you would give us the boldness to say that we are weak or that we need help. Lord, that we are sad, that we are angry, that we are human beings full of emotion. Lord, I pray that you would comfort us with the fact that that's okay. God, be with us this day. Pray these things in your name. Amen.